Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. This is The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host broadcasting to you once again from Radio City Docklands. And as we all know, Radio City Docklands is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. So it seems that we're actually coming out of the end of the second wave. The vast majority of people have bunkered down. We've taken our dose to get through this thing as quick as possible because we need to. And um, a part of that, of course, is the government taking out the big stick in terms of making sure that people abide by the various restrictions that are placed upon us at the moment. And so that means that there's been a uh, uh, an increased powers given to the Victorian police under emergency, the state of emergency that we find ourselves in. So people who are found in unlawful social gatherings in premises now receive, you know, a fine for $5,000 plus. We don't have to worry about the curfew anymore, but there are huge fines, of course, for not wearing face masks, being more than five kilometres from your place of residence, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what, of course, has happened with these new police powers is that there has been an increase in the number of fines, increase in the number of civil penalties given to people across the greater suburban area of Melbourne. So what's the distribution of fines and penalties looked like across Melbourne over recent weeks and months? Well, yesterday the Guardian reported using data released by the Crime Statistics Agency showed people who were born in South Sudan and Sudan were overrepresented in fines issued. They made up 5% of the amount of fines that were actually given, despite being only 0.14% of the overall Victorian population. And now to, um, to, to my patch, my community, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people made up 4.7% of the fines, despite just making up 0.8% of the population in Victoria. Now, you can knock me down with a feather. I wouldn't have seen that coming in a million years. I'm being a little bit sarcastic, I guess. Um, as we all know, as we keep banging on this show week in, week out, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are overwhelmingly overrepresented in crime data in terms of interactions with law enforcement and incarceration. So were some people from the Aboriginal community, the South Sudan and Sudan community doing the wrong thing? Yep, yeah, no doubt. But that does the massive overrepresentation of mob in these statistics statistics raise questions about policing, potential racial profiling, and deeper systemic issues within the police force that impact on people of colour? The answer to that, of course, is absolutely it does. It does tell us a lot, and there are questions that need to be asked. We've all seen people breaking the rules in our day-to-day outings across the city, people out after curfew in this neck of the woods where I reside, Radio City Docklands, most of the people I've observed were either tradies or middle-class men, you know, not wearing masks, um, break, breaching social distancing measures. 
Um, but you've got to ask yourself the question, how many of these people have actually received fines? It's also important to note that uh, this data that I'm quoting from the Crime Statistics Agency only covers March to June. There are reports that the rate of infringements has skyrocketed during the darkest days of lockdown through July, August and September. So you have to ask yourself, are fines being deployed or enforced as a first or last resort? Because it's easier, you know, you've got to ask yourself the question, is it easier to explain why you're not wearing a mask if you're, the same, if you're from the same cultural background as the police officer asking you to explain yourself? I think no doubt it is much easier. So if you're a, a white Anglo-Saxon male and you're dealing with another white Anglo-Saxon male in terms of a police officer, in the form of a police officer, you're probably more likely to be able to provide a, a reasonable explanation or at least be listened to. Uh, giving that explanation. So we need a police force that's able to deal with diversity that reflects the community it's supposed to serve. We also need law enforcement agencies that are able to change their posture from one of pure enforcement to one that is able to better deal with new nuance and circumstance. Because, and here's the rub, at the end of the day, the end result of a major government system, a major societal system, not being able to deal with people of colour and particularly First Nations people, is that we end up with an imprisonment rate of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Victorians, remember we're the progressive state, where we are represented in terms of per 100,000, there are 2,267.7 of us in prison per 100,000 adults. The imprisonment rate for all Victorians the general population per 100,000 adults is 157.1. So that's 2,267.7 versus 157.1. And it's important to note also that between 2009 and 2019, the imprisonment rate for Victorian Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander adults has more than doubled. And I'm not even talking about uh, juvenile detention at all. This is adults. And so when we remind ourselves and we pat ourselves on the back for being the most progressive state in the country and the way that we've dealt with the crisis, we need to keep our eye on the ball in terms of some of the fallout effects, and this is one of them. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll remind everyone and, and quote a section of the Uluru Statement here. Proportionately, we are the most incarcerated people on the planet. We are not innately criminal people. Our children are alienated from their families at unprecedented rates. This cannot be because we have no love for them and our youth languish in detention in obscene numbers. They should be our hope, their future. And so those kids can't be what they can't see. If we've got adults, we've got mums and dads, uncles and aunties, grandparents locked in incarceration, then they lose their culture as a result of that. So um, along those lines and along that theme tonight, I'll be speaking with uh, Thomas Mayor on his new book, Finding Our Heart, a book on the Uluru Statement for the Young. And shortly we'll have a yarn with uh, the one and only Jack Lattimore about his essay as a response to the Black Lives, Lives Movement entitled Through a Mask, Breathing, which was published in the latest edition of Me and Jen. So that's your show. Should be a decent one. Um, as always, you can contact me via uh, Mr. DT James on Twitter, but I think the best way for you to, to contact me tonight is via a pledge by going to rrr.org.au.
Independently yours, Triple R. 102.7. Now to tonight's first guest. The uh, spring edition of Mean Gin is now out and available all over the place, and you can pick it up by subscription by going to the website, which I'll give out later. Our first guest has written a really great piece for this latest edition, his essay, Through a Mask Breathing, an essay that couples a local response to the Black Lives Matter movement to ideas around gentrification of uh, St Kilda and some of our other inner suburbs, to Sydney Nolan and the life and the music of Archie Roach, all set against the quiet menace of the pandemic. It was written by the one and only Jack Lattimore. Jack is a Burpie man, senior editor at uh, NITV News. He has been a columnist for The Guardian and daily editor for Indigenous X. He's also written and appeared in the latest edition of GQ, which I think now officially makes him a male model. Uh, Jack, welcome back to the mission. <laughs> hey, thanks for having me, Daniel. Yeah, no sweat. Um, let's stick with the, the mean gene. Don't know if I'm a model. <laughs> <laughs> Um, let's stick with the Mean Gene piece. It's um, an epic read, and yeah. um, like all bits of writing, it, it, it pieces several strands into, you know, several complex strands into what's actually a, a really well-written, coherent piece. What was the instigating factor that led you to, to, to writing the, the essay? Well, I came away from the uh, June 6th rally in, in town, and... Um, there's a bit in the essay where it's just at the end there where it says yeah. that I was struggling with the mask to breathe and and looking around it was you know, it was pretty packed. Um so I sort of came in a little bit late, it was really packed up towards Parliament House, so I couldn't go up there. Um got you know, pretty bad asthma and stuff myself. Yeah. Um, so the mask, you know, was, was really struggled to breathe and it was the first time I'd been out of the house for a long time. And um just looking around, there was a lot of people there, and I don't know, they started, I had to wear the mask because of the number of people there. Um, yeah, and this is before, and, this is before yeah, masks them, were mandated, eh? Yeah, but there was, I think, you know, a pretty specific sort of direction to don yeah. the mask uh, for anyone that was attending. You know, it was pretty well understood, and I think even the organisers were facing um you know, fines and stuff like that if people weren't responsible in terms of you know, uh, social distancing and, and wearing the mask and, and hand goo and stuff like that. Um, so I had the mask on, but, yeah, first time that I'd sort of been out of the house, so the first time I'd actually worn it around. Mm. Um, struggling for breath, and I don't like crowds anyway, so, you know, the press of the people and that sort of thing was giving the heat of jeebies. Um, and yeah, they all, you know, all his wife all around and started chanting, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I said, this is absurd, you know, this is like a surreal situation yeah. where it's a very real um, uh, situation that people of colour, uh, black folks in this country and you know, African-Americans specifically around the PNM movement uh, in the States, in North America, um, you know, I can't breathe without it with... Um, brother boy there, uh, Bungo Jr., uh, and then George Floyd over there in the States. You know, they're real sorts of things, and then it just seemed to be a little bit co-opted um, into this chant, I can't breathe, I can't breathe, and I was just there struggling to breathe. So I kind of 
yeah, I was conflicted as well because obviously, um, you know, you want allies around these sorts of movement, uh, movements, social movements. Um, so I didn't kind of want to dissuade or you know, have a crack at them or anything, but there was something there. So anyway, I walked away a bit and I was kind of just playing with it around in my head. And I talked with Claire Land actually and said, yep. you know, this strange thing happened when I was there. And, and I said, I don't think I'll write about it in the muffin butt. She said, you know, you should. But yeah, I'll see what happens. Um, and then, yeah, Jonathan Green got hold of me and said, Can you give us something? Like, yeah, I might have something to muck around with for you. Um, but then I was thinking more along the Archie Roach. Like the yeah. brief that came to me was talk about, um, you know, write something about privilege and the BLM movement. Um, at that stage, there was a lot of sort of, sort of um, uh, brand activism type stuff that was attaching to the BLM movement. We'd seen, uh, I think, one of the Hollywood star that kind of came out in support of BLM and was exposed uh, as not having sort of, um, ed- what do you call it, adhered to that line of reasoning or those moral principles in her life previous to BLM becoming a, you know, a mode of currency. Um, and there was the French company L- L'Oreal, how do you pronounce yeah. that? Um They'd, they'd come out and done a little bit around it, and then uh, I think they got exposed as well as not being a particularly diverse or tolerant type of company in the past. So a lot of these sorts of things that were attaching themselves to earn themselves social licence or capital around being a part and supporting of BLM. So I guess that was his thinking, and um, so I just started exploring had notions of doing that and then you know, attached this other thing, this absurd, surreal sort of moment. Um, I'd written for Rolling Stone, a piece that looked at Archie Roach or the connection between Archie Roach and um, ended up being Sydney Nolan. We got sort of revealed in this Rolling Stone magazine piece. Yeah. Um, so I just started reading about Sydney Nolan and because this scene, you know, at the end there was so surreal... Um, I just got this idea of trying to write a Sydney Nolan painting. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, that's effectively what I was trying to do, was write, write a painting that he might have painted in the you know, lyrical sort of manner that Archie Roach may have you know, written a song and just, yeah, all these intersectionalities and... There is there is a lot there's a lot of intersectionality (laughs) there's a lot of intersectionality in this piece, but I like you know it starts it starts at the end if in terms of reading the piece and I don't want to give anything away but you you did reflect on your own struggle to breathe with a with a mask on at the at the June six rally, and that got you thinking about um, about Archie you know you've spoken to him recently I've I've interviewed him recently and he carries around uh, an oxygen purifier. To, to help him to help him breathe, yeah. and you actually end up using his story and his background as a thread for for the rest of, rest of the piece. What 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 did you find in terms of his story, and what has happened to him, and then what's happened to the Melbourne that he actually found as he was growing up and struggling with all the issues that um, the Black Lives Matter movement have actually tried to espouse. What did you find out about him? What did you find out about Melbourne? Well, it was just this pattern of right back to, you know, colonial invasion. Um, the, 
removal of bodies or the impact on black bodies of those sorts of processes. Um, in St Kilda, where I live, uh, there's a remnant of pre-colonial times just down the hill from where I am. Um, that's the, the Nari tree um, mm-hmm. or the Nagi tree. Um, now, that still exists. It's being clipped back. Even that in itself is kind of representative of the processes that have affected black you know, women's bodies um, and lives in this country. So from that sort of point, um, we've seen it you know, get passed forward through to 1860s and into the 1920s and into the 1970s, 80s, 90s, um, 2000s, um, this process of uh, gentrification. Um, landscapes just changing dramatically, uh, susceptible to the various modes of economy and stuff like that. Um Mansions uh, in St Kilda through the 1860s suddenly becoming um, uh, boarding houses and then these boarding houses becoming uh, exclusive units and apartments and things like that. Um, so, yeah, you, um, you, you mentioned... Through you mentioned, you mentioned yeah, the, block the, 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 the block, yeah. There's um, something that... The block, there was a secret life of this over here. Yeah, we've seen the same process. Then I remember riding the push bike. I was living in Fitzroy. The secret life of us was at its peak. I remember riding the push bike across town uh, one hot Sunday, and um, there were still black fellas in Cleveland Park um, at that point. And if people don't know Cleveland Park, it's that little triangle of grass just around the corner from uh, the Esty. Um, across the road from it's kind of at the, the top of Beaconsfield Parade across the road from Katona Gardens mm-hmm. uh, so that is it's been long been a place where black fellas you know, got together and had a drink or just assembled in, you know, to hang out and have a, a yarn or whatever but um, I remember that I was still there at the height of secret life of this and then that shows you know such how many seasons it went across by the end of that there wasn't that many black fellas around or particularly not there anyway so it was there, and then the, um, that other one that was over that affected Fitzroy, Collingwood, Northcote, um, Kasha Sharni, or whatever her name is. Yep. Um, so there were those two, but the block is the big one. That, uh, particularly in the last couple of years here, they took over the Gatwick, uh, moved everybody on from the Gatwick Hotel, and then the Oslo's uh, around the corner. And took in as well. There's a few others around here, but there's all they come in with these promises of you know, economic uplift, sort of local businesses. Um, like Fitzroy Street's really struggling, has been for the four or five years that I've been in St Kilda. Because there was, there was a promise, there was a promise that, that the, the block um, projects would revitalise the whole area, but um, what it actually did was still yeah. a uh, you know still a significant part of its its its, its life and existence. And, um, you know, what some people would yeah. call the seedy yeah. side away from it, but it's actually just gentrified it and made it less vibrant. Well, that's right. And I did something else with uh, one of the local political group or something that um, uh, Tim Costello, I think he mm-hmm. is a former mayor or former councillor here. He was saying that, you know, not that long back, you can remember that St Kilda 
what he loves about it was he could walk down the street and be, you know, the other ones getting around with their hair curls in, just going to grab some milk. And there was like an actual suburb, a functioning suburb instead of what it seems to, you know, become once, you know, the Gatwick uh, stopped being the Gatwick and became the exclusive department. There's nothing going on down there. You know, it's just this, this ghost sort of block um, around that area. People yeah. drive in and drive, you know, if they're not hanging around, there's no vibrancy on the streets. So, you know, they're not doing all their shopping in that strip. It's really street, you have a look. If anyone just you drive down there recently, more, I think, maybe half a dozen to a dozen shops that are still operating, or businesses that are still operating, and the rest are just sitting vacant. Um, which is really bizarre because, you know, around that time of Secret Life of this, I remember it was, it was still buzzing then. And then you hear these oral histories over here and, you know, how vibrant it was, places like George Hotel and stuff in the late 70s, early 80s. And so, you know, all of that sort of stuff is, is going on. Um, and I've seen some of it when I was living in Fitzroy and Collingwood as well. So. Yeah, it happened. It happened um, by yeah. the time you arrived in... Um, in uh, Fitzroy and Collingwood in 1999, the <clears throat> gentrification process had pretty much taken shape and the, the, the Dirty Mile, as it was known, Gertrude Street, was pretty much no more in terms of being, uh, I guess, a gathering place for, for the movement, for the Aboriginal land rights and the Ag- Aboriginal yeah. um, uh, political movement. Um, tell me about how you got in contact with a bloke that actually wrote a review of Archie's first smell, um, first album in uh, Rolling Stone way back in 1990, which he came across. Yeah, well, um, Rolling Stone asked me to write on the 30th anniversary of uh, um, Archie Wine. So there was an article written uh, back then, just prior to the album coming out, um, and it was entered into this competition that Rolling Stone magazine was running uh, for you know, university students, I forget what it's called, um, you know, campus writing competition, something like that. Uh, so this guy had obviously gone out to, I think Archie was living in Thornbury, he said, um, at that point. So he went out there and, and sat with Archie and Ruby and the kids and had a, a chat and did an interview and then wrote about it. But what was clear in, in this piece, um, Michael Manslow, his name was. And what was clear in his piece was that not only did he you know, go on out and go to it's pretty clear that he was white fella, but also that he had some understanding of um, the plight, the black Aboriginal plight, um, and sensitivity to it. So uh, the guy from Rolling Stone said, check this out. You know, we want to I can get a mention of that in there, um, and then you can do whatever you want with, with, with the article. So I was just looking at the name, and I was, all right, let's see who this bloke is. Let's see if I can get in touch with him. And I had a good look on the, the magical world of the internet, and um, didn't take much sort of investigation to figure out that he was connected to Sydney Nolan. Uh, so I got in touch with the Sydney Nolan Trust, I think, um, or a, a film company that had been working with the Trust. Um, was ended up being this Michael Wingslow's sister. Uh, she mm-hmm. gave me his number, and yeah, there was a connection there between Sydney Nolan and um, and Archie Rose. Sydney Nolan 
was the guy that, uh, some paintings that he'd done uh, in his latter years, two or three years before he expired, um, had informed Michael Langsmart um, about deaths uh, and custody and stolen generations and things like that. He sort of piqued his curiosity and he went and um, and then his, his own research. And so he knew a, a little bit about Basos. Mm. Um, um, and those were a set of paintings that were inspired by John and Pat, who I think that anniversary is this year um, of his death in custody. Um, yep. this, year, this week, sorry, of his death in custody. Uh, so, yeah, there was, just seemed to be all these points of connection um, you know, between the... Yeah, some custody stuff, the stolen generation stuff, um, and all of the things impacting on black bodies and, and the BLM stuff on June 6th. So, so it all seemed to make sense to me in the cabin fever that I had. <laughs> We're speaking with uh, Jack Lattimore, who's written a piece in Mean Gin um, entitled Through a Mask Breathing. Uh, before I let you go, uh, Jack. Just back on the, the Black Lives Matter movement, we, we saw protests across the country. Do you think the, the I guess it's kind of the morphing of, you know, the Aboriginal Lives Matter, the Aboriginal justice uh, movement in terms of incarceration and, and, and police brutality and the like, it's sort of morphed into this hashtag now, you know, BLM. Do you, do you think that uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement is actually going to instigate change, or do you think that as time goes on, all of the so-called allies will just fall by the wayside? I think it's inevitable we'll be a falling by the wayside, but it's like with social media and clicktivism and all of that sort of um, conversation uh, for half a dozen uh, years ago, I think it's, it's a great entry point, it's a great instigator um, for more con- more considered, um, more demanding sort of uh, involvement and participation in change. If it gets young ones, if it whets their appetite to become more politically engaged, then that's a bonus. I, I see it as a useful tool, a very um, um, yeah, a significant instrument to be able to leverage uh, movement change um, and possibilities elsewhere. But yeah, in and of it by itself, I think uh, already you've seen uh, even people that are behind the BLM stuff in the States uh, writing books and you know, being outspoken about what where change really needs to occur and how it can mm. happen on the streets. Great. It's colourful, it's spicy, we use Briggs' term. Um, but, you know, the, the less colourful stuff, the real legwork starts in institutions like healthcare and you know, the criminal justice system and it's, it's not as um, yeah, it's not as colourful to follow I suppose, so you know, there's people this is the thing for me as well there's people that, uh, from our mob that have been working in community organisations that don't necessarily get uh, recognised as activists or whatever they're more advocates, or you know, yeah. But they've been doing the hard work, the leg work in these areas for a lot longer than people have been out in the streets with placards and stuff. You know? 
Yeah. Before the placards and chanting, I can't breathe, became sort of trending on social media. People have been doing it for decades. So, you know, they'll keep doing it and there'll be people that um, follow them along that path, long after, uh, you know, all of the movement and vibrancy has, has gone out of the hashtag BLM social media stuff. Yeah, and I think if that's one positive thing that can come out of this is that the people who are doing the work day in, day out, year in, year out, actually hopefully get more recognition than they have so far because they so much deserve to be recognised for the tremendous amount of work they do to help their own people and other other sections of the community as well. I've um, been speaking with Jack Lattimore. He's essay is in Mean Gin. It is through a mask breathing. Um, you can subscribe to Mean Gin by just going to meangin.com.au and hopefully when bookshops open back up, uh, you can go into any decent bookshop and, and find a copy of it there. As you can also find a copy of uh, GQ in which he has actually written an article uh, uh, on Briggs and he's also appeared in, as himself as a bit of a male model in uh, the latest edition of GQ. <laughs> Uh, he also works for NITV, which do amazing work um, covering the issues of First Nations people across the country on a shoestring budget, but you wouldn't have a clue because the, the quality of the product is so great. So, Jack, I know you're a busy man. Thank you so much for your time this evening. Thanks for having me, Daniel. Anytime, and uh, I'll catch you. Hopefully, on these restrictions, ends a bit. I'll see you around the traps. Thanks, brother. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. I've uh, got quite a few subscribers uh, popping up on the uh, pledge board here, so I thought I'd better get to them before I get to uh, our next guest, Thomas. Uh, let's start here from the bottom. Um, Megan Stewart from Brunswick Geese is renewed breakfasters with a generous donation of $50. Thank you, Megan. Very much appreciated. Uh, David Killey is a passionate subscriber to JVG Radio Method with a donation of $50. Last-minute sign-up, he says... Many thanks for years of listening pleasure, especially Bland on Bland. Tell him if tell him it's my shout at the hotel of his choosing when the pub doors open and we'll drink to multiple songs. Yes. Hayley Allen from Q uh, is an artist. She has resubscribed to the station with a donation of $15. Charlie Stewart from Brunswick is new and subscribed to The Cave. This is a gift for my son during year 12. He's become more aware of some of the great programming on Triple R. Hopefully he can partake in the always incredible subscriber film screenings I have loved. Thank you, Charlie. Callum Preston from Melbourne is a new subscriber to the station. James Lapthorne from Hyatt subscribes to Double Bounce, been a listener for a while. Happy to finally be in a position to support the great local independent media. Thank you very much, James. Appreciate that. Rilo the dog, you're a very good boy from Eaglemont. Donation of $15 and a subscription, a new subscription. Andrew Stammers is from Frankston and he's a new subscriber and uh, he's subscribed to the station as a whole. Uh, a hearty hello from Frankston. It's not half as bad as they say. It's probably a little bit more than half, actually, but you've got to love it, Triple R. You've uh, made Melbourne a place to call home. Thank you. Love you, Andy. Love you, Andy. Thank you very much. Ryan Green Care is a renew for Breakfasters. You guys are so great. Going to miss you, Sarah. 
We all are. That's true. Uh, Chris Owens is a renew for Off the Record. I'd like to thank everyone at the station for doing an amazing job, especially during COVID, renewing to Off the Record, but also love Eat It and Breakfasters. Good luck for the year ahead. Thank you, Chris. Guy Thompson from Brunswick is a renew to Breakfasters. Love my mornings with the Breakfasters. Thanks, guys. Right, Guy. And uh, The Chops from Callista is um, a new subscriber, an artist, the band, um, to Astral Glamour. And they write so many awesome shows. Love your guts, Triple R. Well, we love your guts too, The Chops. Going to play some announcements and hopefully I'll be able to bring up uh, Thomas while uh, rubbing my head and patting my tummy at the same time. This is uh, 102.7 Triple R. You're listening to The Mission. Triple R. On to our second guest for the evening. Um, Thomas Mayer is a Torres Strait Islander man born on Larikia country in Darwin. He's been a wharf labourer from the age of 17 until he became a union official for the Maritime Union of uh, Australia in his early 30s. He applied those skills he picked up as a unionist and negotiator to advance the rights of Indigenous peoples, becoming a signatory to the Uluru Statement from the Heart and a tireless campaigner in terms of not only his general advocacy work but also promoting the statement himself. Uh, He then embarked on an 18-month journey around the country to garner support for a constitutionally enshrined First Nations voice as stipulated in the Uluru Statement and a Makarata Commission for Truth-Telling and Agreement-Making of treaties. He wrote a book which I interviewed him about last year called uh, Voice, Treat, Treaty and Truth, but he's now authored a new book called Finding Our Heart, a book about the Uluru Statement for Young Australians. It comes at a time when Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander authors are adapting versions of their work for younger generations. Think Pascoe's Dark Emu, think Marcia Lanker's Welcome to Country. And Thomas is on the line with us now. Thomas, welcome back to the mission. Yeah, good to be back, brother. Why a book targeted at younger generations? Well, I noticed how on Larrakia country here, my kids always come home from school. Anytime they learn anything new, you know, about the, the seasons, the Larrakia seasons or any Larrakia language, they, they come home and tell us all about it, you know, as parents. And, um, you know, they love to, love to, they're really proud of, of um, you know, living on Larrakia land and, connecting with the Larrakia people. And I noticed that this happens for other families as well. Um, kids these days uh, are learning so much more than, you know, certainly my generation as a uh, over 40-year-old. Um, and also I, I had one experience there where I had the Uluru Statement from the heart, the big canvas that it's printed on out in public, and a, a small boy pulled up his family and pointed it out and dragged them over to have a look at it. And um, a teacher... You know, didn't wait for it to be part of curriculum. Um, obviously, it taught the child about it, and um, and so the child went about teaching the parents. So I thought, well, you know, children's books are a really powerful way um, to share information about important change in Aboriginal culture. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? I think a number of us that have been around for a while now have actually sort of recognised that the, the next generation is perhaps, if not definitely, more open to learning about uh true history than any other would you would you agree with that yeah absolutely I, I think what it is is that you know kids in their innocence see the world as it should be you know if, if you're looking through a if, if you ask a child how the world should be they would tell you that everybody should love each other and that there shouldn't be prejudice and that you know we 
um, you know, so kids really, really believe that the world is like that. You know, that's the thing about innocence. And I think it's up to us to make it how they see it, you know, and, um, and to listen to them. Yeah, because we're, um, you know, a generation approaching having the ability to actually have some of our hands on some of the levers of some of the systems, be it educational or otherwise, that have actually get some of these things actually instilled into the into the curriculum. Have you done any work with any education providers in terms of getting the book on the curriculum? Uh, not specifically to get it on the curriculum, but there's been so many teachers. Like, it's just been great. The response from teachers that are looking for the sort of resource that my book provides, you know, it's for five to ten-year-olds, the book, mm-hmm. and it, it is really an honest account of the truth of this nation's history to the point where it says, you know, when Captain Cook arrived, um, he ignored us and things changed and we were treated badly. Um, but it does it in a gentle enough way for, for five to ten-year-olds to be able to understand. And, you know, the, the feedback has been great. Well, the book the book has really beautiful illustrations. In it. How, did, how were they devised? Who did you work with uh, to get those into uh, the book? Yeah. Black Douglas, um, mm-hmm. uh, an artist, uh, Aboriginal artist from Redfern, did the artwork, and he's, he's a real deadly artist, you know, and it just shows on the book the – I mean, it's contemporary art. Um, you know, they're, they're quite contemporary illustrations, mm. but, they're, um, but they're done in a way that just captures the, the beauty of this country um, and the vibrancy of our culture. Yeah, it does. It's um – you know, I'm not a I'm not a five to uh, ten year old myself, Thomas. It may surprise you, but um, I found I found myself enchanted <laughs> in some of the illustrations. They were just um, really vibrant, really modern, but um, also very compelling as as well. Um, well, I've got you here. Of course, I'm going to ask you more broadly about the uh, the Uluru statement. Um, you are a strong and staunch defender of the Uluru statement. Uh, so, with that in mind, what is your reaction to the recently refreshed closing the gap strategy and, and do you think that the partnership between those peak organisations around the Closing the Gap strategy and the government has any ramifications for um, for the Uluru Statement? Um, I think that, uh, well, I know peak bodies have been big supporters of the Uluru Statement. And I think it's partly because, I mean, if you look at the outcomes of the, the Closing the Gap targets, I mean, we're still, even though they, the, the numbers that the government are saying uh, brought it from that controversy of, you know, what was it, something like um, 2,093 to have yeah, the justice uh, proportion of, of uh, Indigenous people that are incarcerated. I mean, who who sets a target like that and, and feels any hope, you know? I mean, that's just ridiculous. And, I mean, ultimately, we should be changing that now, you know? We should be, you know, we should be seeing more resources from government put put, put towards addressing the social issues and the poverty and the lack of housing and the, the health disparities, um, all which, you know, ultimately cause, um, you know, more of our people in desperation to end up in prison. And then the social, the, the justice system in itself, the prejudice in it, these are things that we can change now. We don't have to wait till 2093. So I think, you know, as a unionist, I understand leverage. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the balance of power in negotiations. And when we um, are negotiating from a place where we're not electing our own leaders, where those leaders aren't accountable to 
our communities. We don't even know who our leaders are on a national basis unless, you know, it tends to be the media or the politicians that choose who engages with them, you know, on behalf of Indigenous people from day to day. And so the Uluru Statement simply seeks to set up a representative body so that, um, you know, so that we have that sort of uh, structure, but then also to have a representative body protected by the rule book of the nation, the constitution, so it can be unapologetic. And at the moment, you know, as, as great a job as the, the peak bodies and service organisations do, um, and try, you know, the absolute hardest, um, you know, with all integrity, uh, they struggle because they are ultimately funded by government. So we're talking about something completely different in the Uluru Statement. I think that's, you know, that's understood um, by the peak bodies and it's why they support it. Do you think that there's a risk that the government will in some ways play the closing the gap agenda off against the Uluru Statement from the heart um, agenda, as they have been known to do with other aspects of social policy and First Nations people? Yeah, absolutely. Governments are experts at divide and conquer. They're very well practised against Indigenous people in that regard. For 250 years, they've been um, dividing our people. Um, the way that uh, Native Title was watered down with a 10-point plan by John Howard was all about making it more divisive amongst our people and um, uh, you know, causing more desperation. Uh, you know, this is something that they're experts at, so I wouldn't put it past them. But, you see, we can always go back to the Uluru Statement. It mm. was an unprecedented consensus. It came out of a really legitimate, black-led, um, uh, black expert-designed process. Uh, and we just go back to those words, you know, is what I say. And um, the Uluru Statement is very clear um, on what it calls for, and that is for a constitutionally enshrined voice as the priority and a Makarata Commission. Do you think there's any chance of getting that commission and getting that voice while we still have the current government in power, or do we have to change the government to change the approach to to um, Uluru in terms of getting that enshrinement? Well, the current government uh, is leaving the door open, so I think um, there's always a possibility while that's the case. And if they don't, I think we need to change the government. Um, or in your local areas, and I'm saying this to the listeners, if your federal member of parliament doesn't support the Uluru Statement, then you should campaign to, to get rid of them at the next election. And that's the way that we need to do it. Politicians are moved by that. They're moved by uh, what people are passionate about. And if you really want change um, for the relationship between First Nations people and this country, the rest of the country... Um, and also to, to get rid of those statistics that we have that um, are an absolute shame in the world. I mean, proportionally, the most incarcerated people on the planet, uh, amongst many others, you know, almost 10 years' uh, life expectancy gap. I mean, we've got to get rid of the decision-makers if they're not supporting um, what we call for and what we know will make change. Nothing scares a politician more than a well-coordinated grassroots campaign um, against them and uh, I think Melbourne has shown itself time and time again to be able to generate some of those campaigns and you know either get change or go close to getting change in some um, extremely well held safe seats. Uh, I'm speaking with uh, Thomas Mayer, he has a new book out at the moment, Willary's Statement for Young Australians and it's out um, at all good bookstores. Um, before I let you go, Thomas, what, what next for you? You've, you've found yourself basically becoming a 
renowned author. What are you going to do with that skill? What are you going to do with that part of your life now? Are you going to pen any more pieces or books or essays or um, have you got something else planned? I'll definitely keep writing. I think writing, and, and as you understand, brother, I know you're a great writer. Um, you know, it has the power to move people. Um, it's a way of having, uh, you know, being involved in the national discourse. Uh, and so I'll keep writing. Um, there's there's a lot more to say. Um, but mainly, I'm not going to lose focus on trying to achieve um, a constitutionally enthroned voice. I, again, because I understand that, you know, unless you build the structure that you need to use the leverage of unity um, will continue to be on our knees as a people. So we've got a national campaign, we've got a national consensus that's behind it, and that's what I'm driving for. Well, keep up the good work, brother, and um, thank you again for the book. It's a, it's a, another gift to a nation and, and a gift to the younger generation. So Finding Our Heart, a book about the Uluru Statement for Young Australians, is out now in all good bookstores. You can order on, online or you can wait a week or two for uh, some of our bookstores to open up and, uh, and uh, go and get it. Uh, thanks so much for your time, Thomas. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>